Amen. The greatest thanksgiving I believe we can give to the Lord is to stand and to live in the freedom for which we've been set free. And to understand how truly free we are, how thorough is our salvation, how great a Savior. That exactly what we needed was exactly what God did for us. We're going to see that in this word this morning. I hope it will encourage you if you know the Lord once again to walk in the freedom that is yours. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, you would understand that the invitation is not to join a church. The invitation is to know God and to walk with Him and to enjoy everything that He has for you. The Bible that we are familiar with, that we maybe have in your hand or it's on your phone, the Bible itself is a miracle. It's a book that has come to us from a span of some 1,500 years. It was compiled by 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages, a miracle. But what's an even greater miracle is that there's one continuous theme through all the Word of God. And that is God's plan of redemption for mankind, to bring man back into relationship with him, that he might know him and walk with him. The idea to redeem simply means to buy back. It means to save or recover from the consequences of either wrong actions or, or, or something that's been done to a person, to be able to bring them back to that original place. Uh, that's really what the Bible is all about. In fact, if you read the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, the book, first book of the Bible, you'll discover the story of, of paradise being created. And then because of sin, that paradise being lost. But then the Bible concludes in Revelation, and there's no coincidence with the wonderful story that paradise has been reclaimed. It has been recovered, that God is now our God, and we are his people once again. The Bible also reveals that our God is a God of incredible love. And in his love, he has given all of us free will. The ability to choose of our own free will, whether or not we want to have a relationship with God, a relationship of mutual love and of intimacy. If I came home from work uh, one day and stepped into my front door, through my front door and said, Vanessa, I'm home, come give me a hug and tell me how much you love me. That wouldn't be free will, would it? But what would happen if I walked into the front door and she came running over to me with a big smile and a, and a big kiss and a big hug, right? I'd realize I'm in the wrong house. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It happens all the time, right, honey? But that would be different, wouldn't it? Because that would be true love. And essentially, that's what free will is about. That's what God has done for us, so that literally, that's why we come here in worship, or when you have a, a time with the Lord in the privacy of your own home, there's just a sense of love and of appreciation. Why? Because you understand who He is and how much He loves you, and you reciprocate that love in worship. In Genesis 2, 16, God warned Adam. He said, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, please understand, God did not place the tree in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. The Bible is clear in the book of James that God does not tempt us with sin. But he put the tree in the garden in order to give man and woman the free choice to know him and to walk with him. Well, if you know the story, Satan came along and he deceived Adam and Eve to disobey God. And for the first time, mankind experienced evil the presence of evil in their lives, the evil that God had warned them about. The Bible says they did, in fact, die. They died spiritually because their relationship with God was severed. They hid themselves from God. They, they actually feared the presence of the Lord now rather than loving and looking forward to his presence. 
and then also physically because of sin, it set into motion the process of decay and death, and they would physically die just as we all do. The Bible also makes it clear that that evil was passed on to their children. It didn't stop with them. Their children weren't born innocent. They were born contaminated by that sin. In fact, the very first murder uh, uh, recorded in human history was one of their sons, Cain, killing the other son, Abel. But the Bible also says it didn't stop with them. Romans 5, Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man, and his sin brought death with it. As a result, death has spread to the whole human race because everyone has sinned. And we know it's not an exaggeration to say that that sin has spread throughout the human race. We see it manifested around the world. But it, doesn't, it isn't just something that people learn. It's not something they just grow into. We were born with sin, a sinful nature. Any of us who've had children, we understand that sin, disobedience, selfishness, all these things begin at birth. We've all inherited a sinful nature, and we regularly, if we're not careful, we disobey God's instructions. Now, the Bible also reveals that God loves us so much that God wanted to forgive us. He wanted to rescue us from the consequences of our sin, of our choices. But you see, God is not only loving, we know that God is also just. God is fair. It is not just us, but all the beings in the realm of the Spirit, the countless beings who, who are looking on to see what God is going to do. And so God is true to his nature, and he has to be just. We don't like that sometimes, but just imagine if something took place in our own culture. We, we heard of a terrible accident, a, maybe a drunk driver or a murderer or somebody, and we heard that that person took somebody else's life and they get away with it with a slap on the wrist. Wouldn't we be, you know, mortified? Wouldn't we be angered by that? Yes, because we expect there to be justice. Perfect justice, compassion, but there still needs to be justice. And in the same way, though God is loving, he must also be just, and there is a penalty for our sin, which is death. So the dilemma is simply this. How could he possibly forgive us and set us free in love while at the same time carry out the sentence of death in order to satisfy his justice? How could he do that? And that's why when man sinned, when man turned his back on God and brought death upon himself and creation, that's why Satan gloated. Satan was convinced that he had God in a spot. He was convinced for the very first time he got the best of God. There was no way that God was going to be able to let man go free. Satan knew that God was just. Satan knew that God does not change. He's consistent with his nature. He has to punish sin. And so as far as Satan was concerned in the garden, it was checkmate. God had no other option. God had no other moves. Man was condemned. But what Satan didn't understand is that God had another move. Uh, what C.S. Lewis talks about, a deep magic. He talks about a, just a, a, an understanding, a, a, a solution that God had that was not only beyond Satan's comprehension, it was beyond any human comprehension. And friends, that is the one thing I believe that distinguishes the gospel message of Jesus Christ from every other man-made religion in the world, is that no one could have possibly, no human being could have possibly come up with, in fact, no other religion in the world has the same remedy, the same solution for our situation as we'll see in just a moment. God had a plan. In fact, it was through, the, through uh, King David that God announced that he would reconcile Love and mercy 
with righteousness and justice. David said in Psalm 85, unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. But the question is, how could God do that? How can God reconcile love and justice? How can God reconcile the sinfulness of man and the sinlessness of God and bring them together again in relationship? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that God instituted a sacrificial system and a feast system that taught mankind exactly how God was going to do this. God said to Moses in Leviticus 23, These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as official days for holy assembly. Now, these holy assemblies were not just religious ceremonies. They were actually rehearsals. That's where they were meant to be, the sacrificial system, all the ceremonies, the rituals, all the things that Israel was instructed to do. They were rehearsals or pictures of the things to come. Now, in order to pull off this rehearsal, God also needed what you might call a cast of characters. And so he raised up a nation called Israel. And through Israel, he would enact this drama for all the world to see of how God was going to reconcile the problem of loving mankind on the one hand and at the same time exacting just punishment for sin on the other hand. You see, the Jewish people understood as they went through these ceremonies, as they celebrated these feasts, they understood that these ceremonies in themselves, they were not the final solution. They were only a picture. They were a picture that represented or pointed to the solution that was still to come. And so their prophets and even their kings would write about this person who would one day come and in him would be the fulfillment of all these things we are rehearsing. Year after year, season after season, they all point to the coming Messiah, the Savior, that is being played out in all this drama. The Apostle Paul wrote about these feasts and festivals in Colossians saying, these are only shadows of the reality to come. And Christ himself, Jesus Christ, is that reality. God was using Israel to play out this drama of redemption for the whole world to see. And by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, some 1,200 years later, anybody who had eyes to see, anybody who knew the Scriptures and who had a heart open to God, they could see that Jesus, who he was, and what he had come to do. Now, there are two prophetic scenes or two prophetic enactments that point to Jesus in the Old Testament as our replacement in God's redemptive plan that we see played out on the cross. You may be familiar with these, you may not, but the first one was called the Day of Atonement. Once a year in Israel's history, once a year the high priest was to take two goats on the Day of Atonement. They counted as one sacrifice. A lot was cast and one goat was chosen, the lot would fall upon, and that goat would be sacrificed in the usual way. And the blood of that goat would be taken in the Holy of Holies in the very presence of God and sprinkled upon the mercy seat for the covering, the forgiveness of the nation's sins for that year. The second goat was to be spared. The high priest would lay his hands upon the goat. He would confess all the sins of Israel. And in doing so, he would transfer the sins of the nation onto that goat. Then that goat would be led out into the wilderness to a very remote place. And it would be released. 
Now again, those two goats describe, are described in the Scriptures as one sin offering. And they revealed how God was going to miraculously, on the one hand, punish our sin, and on the other hand, pardon our sin at the same time. In that one offering, God would forgive our sin. As we see in the animal that was sacrificed, its life was taken because of man's sin. And then he was going to remove our sin, as Scripture would say, as far as the east is from the west, through that second goat that was led into the wilderness in a remote place, never to be seen again. It was actually called the scapegoat. That's terminology that we've borne in, in, our, in our language today. We use that term scapegoat. Somebody taking all the blame that they didn't deserve so somebody else can get off scot-free. And so that scapegoat was taken into the wilderness. And God was saying, not only have I forgiven your sin, but there's now no condemnation, we learn in the New Testament Scriptures, because I've also removed your sin. Out of my sight, out of your sight, and now I want you to live in the newfound freedom of the cleansing and forgiveness that I provide for you. Now, I hope you're beginning to see that this is something we could never have done ourselves. You see, we could have paid for our sin. And in fact, we deserve to pay for our sin. But here was the dilemma. God loves us too much to live forever without us. And so he could allow me to pay for my sin, but once I've paid for my sin by death, which is what my sin deserves, then I'm dead. I've paid for my sin, but I can't live after that. I've paid for my sin, but I'm still separated from God. I can't live with him in this life and in the life to come. So justice has been satisfied, but love has not been fulfilled. Because in love, God wants to satisfy justice and at the same time deliver us from the consequence of our sin. Again, it was something we could not do ourselves. It was also impossible for the blood of animals to remove our sin. Hebrews 10 and 4 tells us that. And all it could do, all the blood of animals could do, was point to how God was one day going to provide the perfect replacement unto whom he would transfer our sin and also judge our sin in that person. Who is that person? That's right. Isaiah said some 800 years before, all of us like sheep have strayed away. Anybody here this morning can say, yes, I've done that. I have strayed away from God. Anybody? I've gone my own way. That's right. He says, we have left God's path to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the sins of us all. The only replacement God could accept to pay for our sin, this is very important, was another human being. But here's the problem. One sinful man cannot die in the place and liberate another sinful man, right? If you have two people, two cellmates who are on death row because of the crimes they have committed and have justly been sentenced to death for those crimes, even if they strike up a great friendship and just love each other, become best friends while they're in, on death row, one inmate could not say to a guard, listen, I feel terrible, my friend has to die too. I will die in his place so he can go free. Why wouldn't that work? Because the death sentence is over both of them. They both must be punished for their crime. In the spirit sense, in the spiritual sense, both must be punished for their sin. So that's no solution. The only solution is to find a perfect, sinless human being. 
But remember the scripture we read that says, everyone has sinned. So what do we need? We need someone who was human so he can be a representative, but he is also someone who is perfect and who is sinless like God. Our replacement had to be a perfect man, had to be a God-man. So God became a man. God became a human being. Can we say thank you, Jesus? Amen? Thank you, Jesus. There was no other solution. Friends, if you can imagine for a moment what hell is like, what eternal separation from God is like, that was our destiny. That is what we deserved. That's where we would be today, where we would be when we draw our last breath. God, help us to never take for granted so great a salvation that there always be a sense of wonder and of awe, not condemnation and shame, but of worship and of gratitude and just amazement at the love of a God that was so great that he would become man. The Bible says that Jesus bore the penalty of our sin so that we as sinners could be pardoned. We used to sing a song that says, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt that I could not pay, even if I wanted to. I needed someone to wash my sins away, and he did. And because of that, now I sing a brand new song, and it's not zippity-doo-dah. What is it? Amazing grace. Why? Because Christ Jesus, the God-man, the Messiah, he paid the debt that I could never pay. That's what David meant when he prophesied that righteousness and peace, they have kissed at the cross of Jesus Christ. And the proof that God's justice was perfectly satisfied, that something had been done so that we were redeemed, we were brought back, not on parole. We were brought back as full sons and daughters of God who have access into the holy of holies ourselves. The evidence that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was accepted by God the Father, that it was completely and fulfilled and done for us is this, that the moment Jesus drew his last breath, the Bible tells us and, and, his, and, and historians tell us that the curtain in the temple that separated man from God was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, you may not think that's a big deal. Let me tell you what the curtain looked like. The curtain was 60 feet high. Look at the ceiling. Three times higher than this ceiling. That's how high the curtain was. The curtain was 30 feet wide. That's wider than this whole middle section. It was four inches thick. We're told that it weighed four tons, 8,000 pounds. It took 300 men to carry this curtain. That's how thick, how strong it was. It had to be because it, it, out of risk that somebody might have tripped and stumbled into God's presence. They might have been working or ministering around the front of the Holy of Holies and then fallen into the curtain like one of these flimsy curtains we have here and stumbled. No, it was protection for man. Because no one could enter the presence of a holy God and not be destroyed because of his sinfulness. And the Bible says that that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. What does that mean? It simply means this, 
the curtain was torn by God himself. God literally took the top of the curtain and he tore it wide open. Why? Because he wanted the whole world to see that once again, because of what Jesus has done for us, all of mankind, everyone is able to go into the presence of God because Jesus paid our debt in full. There's a second prophetic enactment that points to Jesus, and it's the story of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. We looked at this last week. We spoke about God as our deliverer. You ever ask yourself the question, why in the world would God lead Israel into Egypt to become slaves and then have to rescue them some 400 years later? Why would he not just tell them to avoid Egypt altogether? Why would he take those 70 patriarchs into that family, into Israel, let them grow to millions, and then 430 years later work all these miracles in order to set them free? I believe it was because God had a part for his people Israel to play in this whole redemption story to be read by all mankind. They had been chosen for this, and this drama would portray, I believe, the magnitude of the salvation of the deliverance of mankind from sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. When we look at how dramatically God had set his people free from Egypt, we get a small glimpse at how dramatic was the freedom that he worked for us through the cross. I won't go into detail this morning, but we know that God used a series of plagues in order to bring his people out of Egypt. Those were not just random plagues. They were not just random displays of power. If you know anything from the Egyptian uh, structure, religious structure, you realize that every single plague was a direct assault from God against different uh, unique deities in, in that whole Egyptian hierarchy. The gods that the Egyptians worshipped the God of the Nile, the frog God, and on and on it goes. Every single plague, God was displaying his power to both the Egyptians who worshipped these gods and to his people who'd been enslaved by these gods. He was demonstrating his power over every single one of these false gods and showing that he is the true and living God. And there's a beautiful parallel in in the New Testament where Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 that through the cross of Jesus Christ, he says this. It just came to my mind when I was studying this week. I thought, that's not a coincidence. This is probably maybe old revelation to you, but something that struck me afresh this week. Paul writes these words that through the cross, God stripped the spiritual rulers and powers of their authority with the cross. He won the victory and what? Showed the world that they were powerless. Who were powerless? The spiritual rulers and powers. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus showed them for the sham that they really are. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, he showed us that we are kept enslaved by sin, but we are also kept enslaved by the lies of the enemy who makes us think that he's somebody that he really isn't, who makes us think that he has greater power than he really does. And then, of course, the final judgment upon Egypt was the death of every firstborn son of every household. Now, God made a way for those firstborn sons to be spared, not just for the Israelites, but also for the Egyptians. But he gave them very specific instructions because God is a God of love. God loves all of mankind. So whether you were Jewish or Egyptian, God still said, 
even though I'm going to use these to set my people free, if you will do what I say, you will be spared. When you read the scriptures, we see that on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, each family was to select a one-year-old lamb without blemish, perfect without spot. They were to keep that lamb in their house for the four days. On the 14th day of that same month, the lamb was to be killed and the blood taken and to be smeared upon the doorposts around the door of that home. And God says that as the plague of death moves through the land to bring judgment that night, he said in chapter 12, verse 13 of Exodus, he said what? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence the word Passover. Now, in our English language, we read those words, Passover, and we kind of imagine this plague moving through the land of Egypt in the middle of the night, a dark night, and you can hear the wailing and the weeping as the firstborn are dying in, in thousands of homes. And we kind of imagine God passing over. When he sees the blood on the door, he kind of skips over that home, or he passes by that home. But that's not really the image. In the Hebrew language, the imagery is more this. That, that God is not just passing over the home, but he is not allowing judgment to enter the home. You see, that phrase Passover doesn't mean to pass by or skip over. It literally means to hover over. So he says, as death and judgment are moving through the land, when I see the blood on your door, which is evidence of your obedience to my instruction and what it represents, he says, I will hover over your home. I will protect your home. I will shield you. Paul says in Romans 5 that through Christ, we will surely be saved from God's anger, his judgment, because we have been made right with God by what? The blood of Christ's death. That's what God says. He says the wrath of God hangs over, abides over those who are in sin. But if you will apply the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ to your life, when I see the blood, I will not condemn you in your sin as you rightfully deserve. I will hover over you. I will protect you. I will shield you. And that's why for the child of God, we can truly say, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? You see, Jesus has removed the sting so that even in death, we can look forward to it because it is the entrance into the eternal presence of the Jesus that we have walked with all of our life and we know him and we look forward to seeing him. And we can do that because he has made the way. And so God instituted the feast for Israel to commemorate what God had done, but also to celebrate what God was going to do for all of mankind. God had set all this whole thing up to point to an even greater future deliverance. Jesus said in John chapter 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And he wants us to understand that as miraculous and spectacular as Israel's deliverance was from the land of Egypt, it actually pales in comparison to the deliverance and the salvation of one single human being who was, who was enslaved in sin but is now free. That's why the Scripture says that if the Son has set you free, you are truly free. You are completely free indeed. Now I want to wrap up quickly with just a couple parallels between the Passover lamb and Jesus that show that he was, in fact, 
the, the one that Passover was pointing to. He was, in fact, our replacement. Jewish historians tell us that the Passover lamb was chosen from flocks in the town of Bethlehem. It was then brought back to Jerusalem through the eastern gate and paraded through the city streets. And as the people would see, as, a, as Passover was approaching, they would see the high priest with the lamb coming through the eastern gate. They would begin to take palm branches, and they would celebrate, and they would lay those branches out in front of the peace, priest as he made his way toward the temple. And they would shout, Hosanna, which means, God, save now. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you want to guess where Jesus was born? I know it's not Christmas, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was John the Baptist, his cousin, the son of Zacharias, who was of the Aaronic priesthood, who looked at Jesus one day, and what did John say? He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he said, I testify that he is the chosen one of God. It was on that same day when the high priest brought the lamb from Bethlehem that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. What was he doing? He was fulfilling this annual rehearsal. Can you imagine the scene? The high priest has gone through the eastern gate, and now here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world. He comes and enters on the back of a donkey through that same place, and what does the crowd do? They begin to cry out. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. They took palm branches, and they declared, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they celebrated because they believed he was the Messiah. Isn't it amazing? how specific, how, how, how organized everything was by God, so precise. And in fact, if you understood the geography of that day, even Israel itself was located at the center of just all the major roads that led to and from the major nations of that day. Why? Because what God was playing out in the drama on that Passover weekend, he wanted the whole world to hear about. He wanted everybody to see. And there were people from all nations who were Jewish who came to see the Passover as the Scripture commanded them to. And they would have carried that story back into all the different regions of the world when they had seen what God had done. Once that Passover lamb was in the city, it was put on display for four days so that everybody could inspect it to make sure that there were no blemishes. From the 10th to the 14th of Nisan, that little lamb would be tied up by the temple and people could literally go by and to make sure that it was perfect as Scripture declared it had to be. We also read that when Jesus came through the eastern gate, it was coincidentally, on what day do you think? It was on the 10th day of Nisan. Jesus comes through the eastern gate and then he stays in that temple region for a period of four days before Passover. Why? To be inspected, you might say. If you know your Bibles, if you reread that whole that, that segment, that period of time, you'll, you'll discover that it was during those days leading up to the crucifixion that Jesus was tested. He was tested by the high priest and by the other priests and the, and the religious rulers and the scribes and the Pharisees. You may remember some of the classic questions that were put to Jesus. They were put to him during this time. Questions like, should we pay taxes to Caesar? What were they doing? They were trying to trip him up. They were inspecting him. They were examining him. They were trying to find fault with him. And Jesus said what? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar. Render unto God what is God's. 
It was during that time that they asked the question, Teacher, there's a woman married seven times when she goes to heaven. Whose wife will she be? And Jesus said, In heaven there is no marriage, or no one's given in marriage. Again, he passes the test. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to find uh, some fault against him. They asked him, What is the greatest commandment? And, of course, Jesus answered again. He passed the test. That's what was taking place. Imagine the scene that as that little lamb tied by the temple porch, they're waiting to be sacrificed for Passover, that Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, was being inspected. And then, of course, on the night that he was arrested, he was taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the religious leaders were looking again for false evidence. And so they gathered people. They, 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 they even paid off uh, uh, men to come and to, to bear false witness against Jesus. But their problem was everything they said would not stand up. And so they could not find any fault until finally the high priest just asked Jesus point blank. He said, tell us if you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God. You see, they couldn't find any sin. He was spotless. He was faultless. There was no sin in him, no accusation. Peter would later say a bad word never even came out of his mouth. There was nothing they could point to. So the priest finally realized, I know how we can get him. We're going to make him confess that he thinks he's the Messiah. And they said, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus answered them, yes, he was. They didn't like the answer. And so they sentenced him to death. But here's the problem, of course. They couldn't carry out the death sentence himself. They were under Roman rule. So they needed the Roman authorities to actually put Jesus to death. So who did they bring Jesus to? They brought him to Potter. Now keep in mind, this is still during the inspection time. They bring Jesus to Pilate, and they, they give him all the information, all this trumped-up information. And what does the Scripture say? Pilate examined Jesus, even took him into the back room and talked to him himself. And Pilate comes out and says, I can find no fault in him. There's nothing wrong with him, nothing that deserves death or, or punishment of any kind. In fact, there was another witness. I, th I think if you read the Scripture, you'll discover there's about 10 different witnesses, 10 different evidences of inspection that he, Jesus was who he says he was. Remember, Pilate's wife came to Pilate and said, whatever you do, have nothing to do with this man. He's innocent. This is a sham. Don't get involved in this. But, of course, Pilate didn't listen to his wife because of a lot of political things that were going on. And the, the priests manipulated him because they knew that there was tension between him and Rome. And so, hey, if you want Rome to come down on you, then you let this guy go because they say he's the king. You know, only, only Caesar is king and so on. And so Pontius Pilate was put in this place where he proceeded with their plan. We also see that when Jesus was on the cross, what did the criminal to his side say? He said, remember me, Jesus. When you come into your kingdom, what is he saying? Jesus, I can see. In fact, he said to the other criminal, he said, you and I deserve to die. This man does not deserve to die. And he said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this very day, you'll be with me in paradise. There was another witness, a man on the cross, a criminal himself, who testified that this is the sinless son of God. And then, of course, after he died, the Bible says the Roman centurion, this hardened soldier who had slayed probably thousands of people in his career, could care less. He said, surely this was the Son of God. Witness after witness after witness that Jesus was the Lamb of God without sin. And of course, the Passover lamb was not only selected, it was also sacrificed. 
Mark says in chapter 15 that after a mock trial, Jesus was taken to Golgotha where he was nailed to the cross. And he says in verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Now pay attention to this as we close. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for three hours. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now, why in the world would Mark care about the time? Why would he be so precise with the times of the day that these events were unfolding? I believe it's because he wants us to see the beautiful parallels. And the parallel is this. Is that after the, the lamb had been, had been shown for everybody to see, the Passover lamb, and it would be sacrifice for sin. When that sacrifice had taken place, historians tell us that one of the priests, they would ascend up on the wall of Jerusalem, of the temple, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they would blow the ram horn. They would blow the shofar to announce that the sacrifice was finished. Now try to imagine this, because Mark says at that same time, at 3 o'clock, Jesus is ready to draw his last breath. Now, I don't have too vivid of an imagination, but I don't believe it's too much of a stretch to say this, that as the priest was on the mount, the Passover lamb had been killed and was blowing the shofar, that Jesus is on the cross, and he hears the shofar in the distance. And as that shofar is being blown, Jesus declares what? It is finished. And he breathed his last. And that's why Paul declared that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. How could God punish us and pardon us at the same time? The answer is in 2 Corinthians. Paul writes that Jesus Christ had no sin. But God made him become sin. So that in Christ, we could become right with God. We weren't right with God, but we became right with God. Because Jesus, who was right with God, became sin and died the death that you and I deserved. But you know, as Passover clearly shows, only those who choose to apply the blood to their lives can be saved. That's why we say that we are saved. What does that mean? I have been saved. I have been rescued. I was going to hell. I deserve to go to hell. That's where I deserve to be today. That's where I deserve to be forever. And if you don't understand that, if you don't believe that, then you don't understand what it is to be saved to be rescued, because that's what Jesus did for us. Whoever believes the Son, Jesus said, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath, what? Not God's wrath is stirred up against him. God's wrath remains on him, because it is on you and me from the moment we were born. Because we were born into sin. 
and a rebellious nature against God. We are born in that. And so God's wrath remains on us until something happens that can remove it. And the only thing that can remove it is the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed in our place, that we receive him and what he did for us. He says, if you do, then you will find forgiveness. The worship team is going to come at this time. You know, I'd never given a whole lot of thought to it before. But on five occasions in the New Testament, the cross of Jesus Christ is actually referred to as a tree. You remember reading that? A few times in Galatians, uh, or uh, actually the apostles, Galatians, so on. The cross of Christ is called a tree. But why would the cross be called a tree? I believe there's a connection between the cross and the original tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where God said to mankind, don't eat of this. I don't want you exposed to evil. I want you to live without that. I want you to live in relationship with me. If you eat of that tree, you will die. Now fast forward to the cross 2,000 years ago. And this time God says to all of mankind, eat of this tree and you will live. If you don't eat of this tree, you will die because of the result of the other tree that is part of your nature. Eat of this tree and I will break the hold of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat of this tree and be forgiven and live. Receive Jesus into your life and live because there's no other way to be saved. When we look at the cross, I believe we can say with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Amen? Oh, the depth, the depth of the deep, deep love of Jesus Christ for us. Would you bow your hearts with me? I'm going to ask that every eye be closed. Just listen to this song as the worship team ministers this final song this morning before we close.